0: Hello and welcome to Following the Rules. This is a podcast about the rules shaping UK and EU financial services, and the people responsible for understanding and implementing them. Because in one of the world's most regulated sectors, following the rules isn't always easy. I'm your host, financial journalist Lucy McNulty, and every episode I'll be asking the most influential personalities in financial regulation for their input on the sector's most pressing issues.
1: Today, we're more distributed and more digitally connected than ever before. Digital communications are now the lifeblood of the enterprise. With Smarsh, you can leverage all of your communications as a strategic asset. Smarsh enables companies to transform oversight into foresight by surfacing business-critical signals in more than 80 digital communications channels, from email to WhatsApp to Zoom and many more. Regulated organizations of all sizes rely upon the Smarsh portfolio of cloud native, AI enabled digital communications capture, retention, and oversight solutions to help them identify regulatory, and reputational risk within their communications data before those risks become fines or headlines. Smarsh serves a global client base spanning the top banks in North America, Europe, and Asia, along with other leading financial firms and various government agencies. To discover more about the future of communications capture, archiving, and oversight, visit www.smarsh.com. The war in the Ukraine
2: will have effects on the global economy or national economies, it will also have an effect on how we work together internationally in such a scenario. I'm not sure if the G20 will be as effective as they were. I'm not sure if the IMF will be as effective as it was or the OECD. We may well be standing ahead of a new global financial order.
0: Today's guest details how the ongoing war in Ukraine could fundamentally change the established business models and regulatory policymaking in Western financial markets. He lays out the defence for central banks in their response to the inflationary scenarios that the outbreak of war has contributed to, and sounds the alarm on the market risks that policymakers are forced to ignore whilst they are in crisis mode. Dr Andreas Dombret is the former Vice Chairman of Bank of America's Global Investment Banking Unit in Europe, the Middle East and Africa. More recently, he has been a member of the executive board of the Deutsche Bundesbank, with banking supervision and risk control among his responsibilities. He has also been a member of the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision, the supervisory board of the single supervisory mechanism of the European Central Bank, and spent eight years on the board of Basel-based Bank for International Settlements. Hi Andreas, welcome to Following the Rules.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
0: So, your career has spanned three decades, you've spent several years helping to shape global thinking on monetary policy. I wonder, as the war in Ukraine drags on, what your thoughts on central banks' responses to the crisis have been so far? And crucially, is there anything they're missing in your view?
2: There is an economic implication of this dreadful war. It is my understanding that we could get into a situation where Russia leans a lot more towards China. And where we will not really have a sort of deglobalization, I wouldn't really use that word, but where we could very well have a decoupling into two blocks. These two blocks don't necessarily have to be hostile to each other, but quite competitive and quite separate. So I could well imagine that we end up with two SWIFT systems, two payment systems generally, or maybe even two. Currency systems to different accounting systems, et cetera, et cetera. So, quite uh, as we had it after World War II. And so, on the one hand, I can well see a block which is grouped around the United States, which is a G7 block, the rest of uh, the EU, Australia, South Korea, Switzerland. And I could also see a block grouped around China and Russia. Uh, And then a third group of countries which will try to stay neutral with India being the main swing state, but also Indonesia and Brazil and others. So, and this decoupling, this fragmentation will lead to different economic behavior. The word I heard most was friend sharing. Take the semiconductor industry. Within the semiconductor industry, it is my understanding that 80% of all globally produced semiconductors are being produced in Taiwan. Leaders, will think about whether this is the right distribution or whether this is not too much of a concentration for a strategically important uh, product. So, and then the United States, and I've heard this over there, uh, may well think we need to incentivize building plants in the United States or in befriended countries. Now this, of course, if this all happens, like I'm uh, pointing out, then we would end up in a situation which could well be inflationary, on top of the inflation we're already having, and I'm sure you want to talk to me about, and as the West, if we lose China, partially at least as the uh, uh, workbench, then we're having all sorts of uh, issues with inflation on top of uh, the issues we're having already. So the scenario I'm building is central banks must be prepared that the situation through the war in the Ukraine economically will have effects on the global economy, on national economies, on their own economies. It will also have an effect on how we work together internationally in such a scenario, as I just described. I'm not quite sure if the G20 will be as effective as they were. I'm not sure the IMF will be as effective as it was, or the OECD, etc., etc. So what I'm trying to say is, we may well be standing ahead of a new global financial order, and this is what central banks really care about.
0: Wow. To what extent do you think global policymakers and central banks are taking that prospect seriously?
2: Very much. If you have a g twenty meeting where you have walkouts, the debate is, of course, stalling. And the way, if this goes forward like this, the way I see it going forward is that the G20 will become something like the United Nations, where views are exchanged, but nothing is being decided. And the G20 up to now, and I've been part of many G20 meetings myself, the G20 meeting is a group of countries which are trying to decide something positively. And walkouts make me very nervous. So you know, they are taking this very, very seriously. And if you de-swift a country like Russia, if, you, if I may use the word de-swifting, if you freeze the reserves of a central bank, in that case of the Russian central bank, these are extremely severe, extremely de- severe matters, and they normally lead to something very different.
0: Is there anything that should be happening now in terms of global policymakers' response to the situation that is not happening?
2: Yes, this is a very serious situation, and it's not yet 100% clear to what extent Russia and China will work together beyond their cooperation of the past. So there's still room that this may not be happening. I spoke to somebody who said, uh, if I uh, were China, I would rather date Europe or the United States than Russia. (laughs) That is probably true, but uh, the energies of China are immense. The political situation of China is also somewhat more fragile than it was before, given the, the COVID situation there and their economic softening. There may be a, a soft landing, but we're going to see much lower growth this year, of course, uh, than we ever saw before for since a long time in China. So it really depends on how China reacts to all of this, and the energy needs are high to keep their economy going, and Russia can fulfill and address a lot of those energy needs. China actually has, by the way, only divided by a border, a sea blockade of the United States could never really build up. So they just have a border and Russia can export gas, which it has been exporting to Europe easily to China once it has built uh, such a pipeline and nobody can block them from that. So it really depends uh, what China is doing. Russia is probably hugely incentivized to have a new partner, and China would be the logical partner for that. And that will, of course, change many things geopolitically, but that's up for the Chinese to decide to what extent they want to cooperate with Russia, which has isolated itself tremendously and has become somewhat uninvestable.
0: And you mentioned the prospect of a new financial order arising from this situation. You discussed how you see the G20 changing. How do you see the IMF and the OECD changing as a result of this?
2: It is very early days, and we shouldn't really think about this too early. But nevertheless, walkouts, they lead to to you thinking about this. And it's clear to me that the Bretton Woods systems as we have built them up won't really last. And I could foresee that this one block, if I may call it the Western block, this one block may well be centered around the G7. And, you know, with the U.S. playing a major role in there, and that there will be a lot more coordination within this block. So if you look at the countries which have agreed to the sanctions, I could well see this as the Western bloc. But there still needs to be a nucleus, which could be the G7 going forward. That at least would include Japan as a representative country, so to say, from Asia. It, of course, includes Canada and lots of European Countries, including the United Kingdom, if I may still call this European. So it would be an established group of countries who know how to work together. And uh, that would then give the G7 a much bigger say over the G20 than it ever had. In the past, one would argue how can you really discuss global financial issues without China, without Russia, without Brazil, without Indonesia? And I can come up with some other. Very prominent names. Now you may well have to do this. I could see several countries, as I said, staying neutral. India, again, is the country of most interest. My understanding is that India's army and military system is almost exclusively Russian. So there would anyhow be no way for India to walk away from that alliance with Russia. So what we have been seeing economically and politically are the immense Um, Dependencies which have been built up in times of globalization, and again, economically spoken, we find ourselves in a situation that the business model we have been built on, which are the peace dividend and the globalization dividend, that at least the peace dividend has gone away, and that the globalization dividend taken at 100% is not there anymore either. The real question is to what extent will it be impaired? So, in any case, what I'm trying to say is. Our business model has to change, and this, again, has huge influence on inflation.
0: And inflation is obviously already high. There's already concern that, speaking from the UK context, inflation hit 9% in April, its highest level in more than 40 years. And that's coupled with soaring gas and electricity bills, which has intensified a cost-of-living crisis here in the UK. What should central banks be doing to tackle high inflation? The risk of re- recession that comes with that, the spillover effects in the war of Ukraine and the aftermath of the pandemic, it's a bit of a perfect storm for central banks at the moment.
2: That's, that's exactly right. Now, it's not for me to give any hints to for central banks and central bankers uh, what they should be doing. Nevertheless, this situation where we are is pretty advanced. And a lot of this high inflation is coming from supply-side shocks, where, let's say, from the war in the Ukraine, partially, where you cannot really do much with the normal means of central bankers. Inflation was already high before the outbreak of the war, end of February of this year. But nevertheless, it now increased even further. And so... What I'm trying to say is there is a limited amount of things you can actually do if the inflation is on the run, being spurred by supply-side shocks of this magnitude. Nevertheless, you need to try to do this, and you need to do it gradually. That doesn't mean that a 50 basis point increase or hike is impossible. No, but you can't really be going with that sort of speed the market's may even be expecting, you have to do it gradually. So there is a situation that there will well be a soft landing. There may be a situation that will not be a soft landing. It still depends on the outcome of the war. If, uh, let's say, um, the EU decides to have a ban on Russian gas, the German economy will go immediately into recession. And I think that there is quite a high likelihood of having a recession also in the United States over time, despite the fact that they have lots of oil and lots of grain and lots of fracking and lots of other very good resources. I'm not expecting this to be a very long recession, but I fail to see how we can prevent a recession from coming somewhere in 2023, 2024. But again, There are many, many, many imponderabilities out there, which you can't really see now. and, And it's never good to give up. So I wouldn't really give up on a soft landing. But there is a danger of a recession in major economies going forward. And there's not that much central banks can do at this point in time. My expectation would have been that central banks would have acted earlier. And it's my clear understanding that central banks acted too late there was this mantra out there that this inflationary scenario is temporary now nobody could foresee this war and nobody could could foresee the pandemic nevertheless if you would have looked to that to some extent you should have started tightening monetary policy earlier and that was always my fear that if central banks have such a long period of very exceptional monetary policy that we miss The point in time when to tighten it again and this has happened globally and there is not a single central bank to to mention over another because the mistake which was made and it is a mistake was done everywhere in the uk in the us and uh, is still being considered in 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 the, the ecb so this is not something where One central bank has been better than others, although we must say that some smaller central banks have reacted earlier. The UK has reacted somewhat early in this process. So uh, there's still differences and losses. It is much more difficult to agree something within 19 uh, member states of the eurozone than it would be in Norway or in Hungary or in other smaller countries. But up to recently, up to before the war, you basically had... Three groups of central banks. That's the way I look at it. There were the central banks of the so-called lesser developed countries. Let's pick Brazil, where inflation was well above target, who started raising interest rates quite some time ago. Then there was a second group of countries where the inflation was above target, but not hugely above target. This is where the mantra happened to be out there, that it's only temporary, like the US, like the UK. They started late, but they did. And then there was a third group, which was basically basically the European Central Bank, which didn't do anything. So you had these three groups, if you want to call them groups. And so there were different reactions. And the war made the problem even more visible than it was before, and the economic consequences. And then clearly Europe, should we have two blocks would even be influenced more than the United States and uh, more than the UK. The UK, last time I checked, still has some energy reserves of itself, which it can have. So, so there are different reactions to this. But nevertheless, monetary policy is not responding that well to this
0: it's interesting you mention that about reactions being too slow because actually i wanted to ask you about that again speaking from a uk perspective i was reading an interesting summary in the off to lunch newsletter recently of the times the former bank economist andy haldane sounded the alarm on inflation seemingly unheeded and so i wanted to hear your views about whether central banks should have seen this coming and clearly the answer is yes to that
2: yes the answer is clearly yes i saw what andy said about this he was right and many people like myself also and others also argued that way. Nobody wanted to kill the economy. Nobody saw the war coming. But there was, anyhow, a case for changing gear in monetary policy earlier on. And this is a missed opportunity, no doubt.
0: And in terms of the missed opportunity, what lessons would you like to see central banks learn from this?
2: Let's get out of this um, situation first, would be my my suggestion. This is more than difficult uh, This really can go very wrong and can have severe economic consequences. So there is always the same lesson to be learned. If you make yourself as a central bank dependent for a long period of time on extraordinary loose monetary policy, the difficulty is to find the right time to exit this loose monetary policy. Now, I'm not disagreeing that loose monetary policy in a situation as we had it is the right thing to do. It is uh, clearly the fact that extraordinary times ask for extraordinary measures, but then you have to have the courage and you have to have the strength to also reverse it. Because these uh, economic situations, which are caused by extraordinary and loose monetary policy, they cannot stay on forever. I got into office in 2010, and uh, on the first weekend while I was in office, we had the first Greek program. So we have seen, seen this going on for a long time. We have negative interest rates in the eurozone since a long time. So you can't do this for such a long time without becoming addicted to it. We all know it, but how difficult it is to walk away from addiction. And this is the lesson which doesn't have to be learned from this crisis, which we know anyhow, and which is difficult to do, but it, it was not done. In in hindsight, everybody is smarter, but in retrospect, it was not done very.
0: Okay, and in terms of what's to come, it sounds like you might be broadly in agreement with the Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey, who recently said he was unable to stop UK inflation hitting 10% this year, despite the bank having a 2% target. And he's warned of apocalyptic food price rises as well. So are you expecting things to get much worse?
2: They could. Depends on how this all works out with Ukraine, which is such a saddening story. But Andrew is right. Uh, I, I, he is, and I think it's very good to be transparent about this and to be open about this rather than leaving people in some sort of fantasies that this could work out. This is a very difficult time. And I must say, the Bank of England has reacted to this. It did react to this quite forcefully. It was one of the first to react to it. And so I fail to see that Andrew made that much of a mistake because what can he do about food prices? rises that's not something the bank of england can actually control through higher interest rates now there is the supply side shocks of this magnitude and with this origin is something where which brings the central banks to the limit of what they can do could the bank of england have reacted earlier like other central banks absolutely nevertheless it did react quite early given their peers And and there's not much you can do right now. You cannot, if there is, if we're in the scenario of finger pointing, you can surely point the finger of central banks of having sticked too long to this mantra of this situation, of this inflation being, being, only being temporary. But nevertheless, there is a limit to what they can do now. So it is clear that the Bank of England knows what they're doing. They're a very, very, very good institution. I have the highest regards for the Bank of England.
0: Okay. And just stepping back to the new financial order that you have referenced a few times, does Brexit complicate the UK's position within that in any way?
2: Probably. I'm I'm not watching it that much anymore, but Brexit doesn't make things easier at all. But I don't think it's going to be the main driver. It is the new financial order I've been talking about is something where the UK is 100% aligned with all the other G7 countries. So there is no Difficulty for the UK integrating themselves into that.
0: And uh, switching to a different but equally much discussed topic climate change and ESG environmental, social, and governance concerns. You've previously mentioned that the Basel Committee should come up with some form of global guidance with regards to climate change. To what extent have they taken action on that since you mentioned the need for it?
2: They're working on it and they're doing it and, and they're, they're, they're very well aware of it. Now, this war really leads to a fact that nobody is really watching these topics that much anymore, for good or for bad. And uh, there's a lot of firefighting involved. My feeling is that the entire climate change issue range has taken somewhat more of a backseat right now, but it will become very important three to four years from now. And we even have to do more in three or four years if we have dropped the ball until then to some extent. And this may then also well be deflationary to some extent. So this is coming. So my own expectation is that this entire climate change boom Mm -hmm. is delayed, but it's coming with twice the (laughs) force a little later, and it will come. We will have a sideward development for some time, but then it will boom um, even more than we ever think. So this is something for you to prepare, and this is something regulators have to prepare for, because this is not going away. It's just taking somewhat of a backseat for the moment.
0: Does that concern you, that's taken a backseat for the moment?
2: Nothing you can do about it, I think. I'm concerned about the war, but my concerns are that we have to think through what this all means economically. But, of course, the big pressing problems of our time are not going away. By the way, the pandemic is still there either. I was in a Zoom call with Larry Summers two days ago, and he said, at the moment, two former secretaries of the Treasury have COVID, and it's not me, so it's not over yet. (laughs) So what what I'm trying to say is, we are losing sight of other issues right now because we have this dominant issue, but these issues have not gone away. They'll stay for some time, and they need some proper treatment. But it's now, there's this overwhelming problem coming from the Ukraine war, which makes other things look less pressing. And it's all relative. Issues are relative. And a very, very, very relevant uh, issue has overtaken the others. This will come back onto the radar screen. And it's unfortunate. The entire war is unfortunate. So, uh, But it will come back and it will need proper treatment because the risk for this planet hasn't gone away. And we're right now misusing the climate uh, you know, by shooting... And bombing, etc., worse than we have done for since a long time. And should there be, let's say, a gas embargo, a lot of gas will have to be burned, and that is also not very good for the climate at all. So the prospects are not very good. And China is obviously one of the big polluters, and China has put up all their plans. For helping the climate. But we have to see how they follow through with that also, given that the COVID situation is not that easy, that they are politically challenged, economically challenged. There are many people who are saying that China could well go down from a 6.5% GDP growth to 2% or 2.5%. And this is a new situation for China. So, China, if they would drop the ball for some time, that would, because of the size of the country, have such a big impact on how we make progress or how we don't make progress in terms of climate, this is cannot be underestimated. And this could is, is a scenario which is, of course, not at all impossible.
0: Yes, certainly. What could financial services institutions be doing while policymakers are rather distracted? And is there anything that the financial services sector is missing when it comes to climate change?
2: The financial services sector is... Uh, being forced to look at this. For example, in the Eurozone, there is the stress test. There is the the wish of the European Central Bank to understand much better what is the knowledge of the portfolio within the banks, what can banks do, how much are they aware of the issues within their portfolios, et cetera, et cetera. And again, the risks are not going to go away. But right now, the ECB and others are really thinking about secondary and tertiary effects of the war through higher interest rates through high inflation, through potentially higher unemployment, if we go into a recession, what does this mean for mortgage rates, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So this is really what they care about right now and what they should be thinking about. So again, climate issues are probably taking a little bit more of a backseat, and this is why I think it will all come back, but only gradually. This is not has not vanished from the scene, but it's not something which takes the attention right now, because if I still would be on the supervisory board of the ECB, I would really be thinking about the banking system and financial stability and what I can do in order to make sure that the financial stability is there. And whether we implement climate change related regulation one or two years earlier or later is not the most important thing for financial stability right now, given monetary policy changes and what this means for the banking
0: system. So it sounds like your advice to the Basel Committee would remain the same, but you're more relaxed about the time frame given everything else that's going on.
2: Yes. So I would still hope that the Basel Committee finds solutions, what they want to do in terms of regulation, but this regulation does not have to be implemented tomorrow because there is a huge cost for bank regulation, but you have to to be conceptually prepared. That's correct. But implementation may be delayed somewhat. There are other things you need to be secure. And again, there are many bankers who have no idea of an inflation above 1%, have never seen this in their entire life, and they tend to think that negative interest rates are normal. Yeah, are the most normal thing in the world, which of course they are not or even very low interest rates. you know many people have got accustomed to this low interest rates. a lot of refinancing has been done on the back of that and needs to be refinanced going forward at some point and there will be changes. look what the m a market and the IPO markets are doing. IPO markets is down, m a markets are up. It is very clear that the stock markets are coming down i'm still astonished to see these high valuations in the stock markets i must say and there are fundamental changes ahead of us yeah and if this prospect of a recession becomes more and more pronounced that will have other reactions in the financial sector and this is something many are thinking about right now and are trying to price into their actions and again other issues have to take somewhat of a back seat if there is a structural overall issue. That doesn't mean that I think that climate risk has become lesser of a pressing issue, but it's not that easy to do everything at the same time. You have to go gradually one, one after the other.
0: Sure. And you mentioned that you think the ECB should be giving thought to financial stability concerns. What do you think they should be doing there specifically?
2: The ECB knows themselves what they should be doing, but they are watching the banks very, very closely and the banking system. And uh, the good thing is that during the time after the crisis, and I happened to be there at the time, the ECB and the National Central Banks put a lot of pressure on the banking system to build up reserves, both in terms of equity and in terms of liquidity. So the system now is much safer than it was before. So right now we have a In terms of capital, in terms of equity, we have a much stronger system also in terms of liquidity. We never had a liquidity KPI before, so to say, and the requirement. So so the, the, the system is stronger. And that means that financial stability has more buffers until it's really in danger. Nevertheless, we want to understand what are the vulnerabilities of the market. And if there is a recession, this always is negative for financial services, as you would expect, and for banks especially. And you really want to stress test and make sure that you don't need those buffers that much. And some of those buffers were actually needed in the COVID pandemic. The uh, ECB did relax. Their requirements on banks during the time and was just about to strengthen those requirements again. And here we have the war in the Ukraine. So it's a little bit like with sovereigns. If you have a low debt to GDP and you have more fiscal space, it's much better than if you don't. Germany, for example, was very much criticized after. 2010 and after the the Greek issues, that it was in some sort of an austerity policy. The same held true for Mr. Osborne and the United Kingdom. And now I would argue that the UK and Germany have more fiscal space than others because of that in order to react to extraordinary non-foreseen issues. And you need this buffer if you go into a crisis. If you don't have it, you sure would like to have it. And so it is always important to have reserves And most banks have built up these reserves from which they now can take comfort.
0: Okay. And lastly, is there an upcoming or current challenge that you believe not enough people are paying attention to right now?
2: Again, nothing as important as the war in the Ukraine, but this entire DeFi crypto scenario is something you need to watch very, very closely. Also, from a financial stability point of view, you saw the little shocks we had in the market recently, and there is a new technology coming. So a new technology always, you know, changes the envi- environment fundamentally, and that is basically the blockchain uh, technology. And this metaverse is causing all sorts of interesting investment opportunities, but also challenges to the financial system. And this is something you really need to think through. It starts with uh, digital uh, currencies for central banks as one measure, but this is something which looks like a topic for nerds but also has lots of implications otherwise for the financial sector. And the second, if I may answer with with two answers, we need to make sure that we get our hands around the cyber crime threat. Uh, As I tried to, to explain before, I'm not that much concerned about financial stability from banks because of their higher equity and liquidity buffers. But the next crisis is likely to come from a different angle, because a lot of good things were done for banks and other financial service providers. But what if the issue comes from the crypto world? What if the issue comes from major cyber attacks? And these wars are sometimes also done in the cyberspace, and not only on the battlegrounds. So these are two areas which are technology related, which policymakers really have to think about a lot. They're doing it, but it is important to make sure that you get your hands around this, that you stress test this, that you understand the vulnerabilities of the financial sector, and that you really move forward in protecting from threats like this.
0: Okay, well, that has been a very sobering conversation, Andreas. I really appreciate your time and perhaps we can. Get you back on following the rules for an update but thank you very much for your time today
2: thanks it's always good following rules
0: you've been listening to following the rules with lucy mcnulty if you enjoyed this episode i'd be very grateful if you could rate review and subscribe on all the usual channels it helps other people get to know us too